If you know something about New Year fear, if you are anxious about the unknown spreading before you in 2022, well, the Bible has something to say to you. I mean, maybe you're at a turning point. Maybe you're uncertain about what awaits you in the coming year. I think for too many of us, uncertainty gives way to fear. And fear gives way to stress. And stress too often leads to despair. As Shakespeare's Macbeth put it bitterly, life is but a walking shadow that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And so we try to manage the adversities of life on our own, triggering what David Pallison called the noise machine inside you. Pallison asks, what happens when you attempt to control another person's attitudes and choices? You set yourself up for despair or rage. What happens when you are obsessed with getting people to like you? You become flirtatious or artificial. What happens when you live for success in sports, career, or your physical appearance? You get injured. You retire. Someone comes along who's better than you. You get old and wrinkled. And into this sound and fury, Jesus simply asked, why do you worry? Why are you anxious? Oh, you of little faith. And that is the core of the problem. Flickering faith. Wavering trust in the only one who does control all things. The only one who does know the end from the beginning. Today we begin a series in a book of the Bible written 3,500 years ago in a primitive age, into a vastly different culture, and for a unique people. And yet, the human condition hasn't changed over all those years, and God's character remains the same, and so God's Word speaks with equal authority now as then. In the book of Deuteronomy, God's people are on the plains of Moab, and they're poised to enter the promised land. Wilderness and hardship behind them. The promise of the promised land lies ahead, but looming in between was superior armies and sophisticated societies and adversity and conflict. Well, it was a time for them to renew their commitment to face the future with confidence and hope. In short, it's exactly what we need today here in Dubai. Let's open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of what's sometimes called the Pentateuch, the first five books, or the Law of Moses. The, uh, the opening book, Genesis, is about God's creation humanity's rebellion and exile from God's presence, cast out of the Garden of Eden, and then history begins heading somewhere at an accelerated pace, ten generations from Adam to Noah, 
ten generations from Noah to Abraham, to whom God makes a world-shaking promise in Genesis 12. Turn there quickly, Genesis 12, look at verse 1. And then we'll go back to Deuteronomy. This promise sets the stage for all that follows. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And from that one man, God promised to make a new humanity in a new Eden environment, a promised land called the land of Canaan, where God's people would once again live with God, no longer in exile. In time, Abraham's family grew into the people of Israel, and they were enslaved in horrible conditions in Egypt, and God mightily delivered them through the Red Sea. That's the book of Exodus. And then He set them apart by giving them a law. That's the book of Leviticus. And He sustained them through the wilderness wanderings on the way to the Promised Land. That's the book of Numbers. And now here they are, encamped on the east side of the Jordan River, on the brink of entering the land where we see God's faithfulness and Israel's failure. Those are the two points of the message this morning. God's faithfulness and Israel's failure. Let's consider first God's faithfulness. They're in Deuteronomy 1 verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel. Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, in Edre. It had taken 40 years to make an 11-day journey. After God had rescued these people from Egypt, after He had given them the law at Mount Sinai, here called Mount Horeb, He told them to go in and take the Promised Land, and as we'll see, the people rebelled against him in the wilderness. They actually refused to go in. In fact, they tried to return to Egypt after all that God had done. And Moses is recounting this history for a new generation at the borders of the Promised Land. Now verse 5. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland, in the Negeb and by the seacoast. 
the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. The Lord had promised, and now the Lord followed through. Go in, he said, and take possession of the land. Of course, they would have to take possession, as in dispossess it. And the reason for that is because other people were living there, the Canaanites. And they had built homes and planted crops and raised families. And many people have a problem with the Bible at this point because they claim that what God is commanding is actually immoral. Nothing short of thievery. No, even worse, a form of ethnic cleansing. And as we move through Deuteronomy, we will address these objections as they arise. But for now, three quick points on whether it was immoral for God to displace the Canaanites. Number one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. In other words, God made the world and He owns the world and He can dispose of it as He will. All property, all real estate is ultimately His. So the principle of ownership, number two. The inhabitants of the land, these Canaanites, were positively morally evil and the conquest was God's judgment of them sort of fast-forwarded back into time. Moses will say later in Deuteronomy 9, it was because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Their being, to use the words of God, vomited out of the land. God is purging, He's cleansing this land in which He intends to dwell through the tabernacle and the temple. And then reason number three, why this is not immoral by any means. Well, God isn't playing favorites here. It's abundantly clear that God is impartial in His justice. Just keep reading the Old Testament, and you will see very clearly. Israel itself gets cast out, and for the very same reasons. All of it was predicted beforehand in the book of Leviticus. In fact, I want you to see in Leviticus chapter 18, just turn back there, see the prediction. Leviticus 18, that's just a couple books to the left. This is why I think it helps to actually bring a Bible as opposed to a phone. Leviticus 18, look at verse 24. Leviticus 18, verse 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. And he's referring here to various sexual and other sins that characterized Canaan. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants." But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean. 
lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. So God is right, and He is in His rights to judge the world as He sees fit, according to His holy character. Close parenthesis. Well, let me just say that as I looked at this passage this week, one thing that struck me is how word-centered all of this is. I mean, notice how the book begins there in the first line. These are the words that Moses spoke. Of course, Moses was not just anybody. Moses was a prophet. He spoke with divine authority. So he wasn't just giving his own religious opinions. Because, look at what verse 3 says. He spoke according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So here in Moses was a man under orders. What God says is what Moses says. And so Deuteronomy is not just a repeat of the law we got in Exodus. It's an exposition. That's verse 5, where it says in verse 5, Moses undertook to explain the word, that is to unfold it, make it unmistakably clear, unpack it for the new generation as they sat there on the borders of the promised land. So how does God relate to his people? Through the written word. Friends, this is why it's unhelpful when TV screens begin to replace pulpits in church buildings. This is why good preachers are like postmen. They don't write the letters, they simply deliver them. Or they're like TV reporters. They don't make the news. They accurately report it. Well, so it is with preaching. Our concern is not to be original, but to be reliable. I remember once attending a church where the preacher read from a text of Scripture and then went on to give uh, homespun stories and religious opinions without ever once going back to the text. It was kind of like John Broadus once quipped, if some sermons had the smallpox, the text would never catch it. So our church must be word-centered. And our church must be faithfully led. Look at verse 9. At that time I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me. The thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. Apparently Moses was drowning in judicial backlog. He was choking in administrative overload. And why was that? Well, because, verse 10, the Lord had multiplied them, just as he had promised Abraham way back in Genesis. 
Remember he promised Abraham that somehow his little family would become as numerous as the stars of the skies? Well, now it's happening. It sounds a lot like God's charge to Adam in the garden to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Israel is like a new corporate Adam entering into a new pristine Eden, a home of righteousness where God himself will dwell. So since they were multiplying, Moses was delegating. More leaders were recognized. Notice the congregation played a role in this. Verse 10, choose for your tribes wise and understanding and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. So not self-appointed leaders, but congregationally appointed ones. Now, in today's corporate world, self-confidence and self-assertion are deemed essential to successful leadership, but not here. Not Moses. Moses readily admitted, I'm not able to bear you by myself. And this wasn't self-deprecating pessimism. It was healthy realism. Moses' confidence was never in himself. It was in God in leading this mixed multitude. And by the way, thank God that the leadership of his people doesn't rest on the shoulders of one man. The New Testament pattern is one of plural elder leadership overseeing congregations marked by these same kind of qualifications, wisdom, understanding, experience, the ability to teach. These are men who must be above reproach. And in our church, we happen to have ten elders with more on the way, we trust. Now, I was gone for much of last year, and several of you have mentioned how smoothly it all went. The church didn't skip a beat. In fact, somebody asked me, do you feel bad that the church did so well in your absence? (laughs) Quite the contrary. I rejoice in being dispensable, because here we see God's faithfulness in how His people are led and governed. Verse 16. And I charged your judges at that time. Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. For the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me. And I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. You know, friends, when we play favorites at church, when we favor one caste over another, or one socioeconomic group, or what have you, it's not just unkind. It's not just socially suspect. It's positively evil. It's anti-gospel. Kowtowing to the high and mighty, asking wealthy people to serve in leadership just to ensure they continue giving. Sometimes we hear this kind of thing in, uh, in leadership. If you can run the bank... Well, then he can run the church. And so the character qualifications and the doctrinal qualifications are set to one side. Friends, do you see how worldly this way of thinking is? Favoritism in church says those the world says more important, we here in the church are going to say are more important. But my brother elders, let's never forget verse 17. 
you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. That's because the people are God's. Christ alone is ruler in the church, covenant leader of His people. It's true that He uses qualified elders to oversee the flock, but we're always under shepherds, under the, the great shepherd of the sheep, and we're ever dependent on God's Word in the exercise of our authority. So here is the new generation, and they're poised to enter the promised land, and they needed to be reminded, and so Moses is recounting the history for them in verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. I remember one time I was flying from Dubai to Cairo, and the jet took us right over the Sinai Peninsula, giving us what amounted to a perfect aerial tour of a howling wasteland below. Verse 19, that great and terrifying wilderness. I was in my window seat looking down, and there was nothing there but uh, craggy mountains and nothing green at all. And yet the Lord supernaturally got them through it, and now He was going to give them fertile, lush land flowing with milk and honey. It was indeed good because God was faithful to His promise. Verse 22. 22. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us, that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up, and the cities into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me, said Moses. And I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eskol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Well, it was a military reconnaissance of some sort. But it was more than that. They were also looking to see, was God going to follow through on His promises? I mean, was this going to be a good land? And based on that fat cluster of grapes, it obviously was fruitful. And so here again, more evidence of God's goodness, His faithfulness to His promises. He was giving them every reason to trust Him. I mean, just think back to the rescue out of Egypt, supernatural deliverance, and then provision in the wilderness, water from a rock, bread from heaven, multiplication in their numbers, the undeserved gift of the promised land before them, even the fruit of the land. It all confirmed, it all validated God's faithfulness. But yet here we also see Israel's failure. Point two, Israel's failure here in verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, 
Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And so what you had was outright rebellion. You see, there were 12 spies sent out, one spy for each of the 12 tribes, and when they returned, there was a divided report, a majority report with 10 spies and a minority report with only two of them, Joshua and Caleb. They both saw the same raw intelligence, and yet, although they went to the same places, observed the same inhabitants, they came back with radically different assessments of the situation. The majority said, we can't attack these people because they're stronger than we are, and we are like grasshoppers in their eyes. But the minority said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can surely do it. Now, my question is, how can it be that two groups saw the same things and yet came out with such radically different assessments of the situation? Well, look at verse 29. Verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night, in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. How can it be that two sets of people can see the same evidence and come to two radically different conclusions? Here's how. Some factored God into the equation. Others did not. The majority simply didn't trust God. That's verse 32. Yet in spite of this, you did not believe the Lord your God. Not that they were atheists. Not that they doubted his existence. He was visibly there with them, you know, in the, in the fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. The point was they didn't trust him, which is why their perception of reality began to be contorted and distorted in spite of all that the Lord had done for them who he had revealed him to be. They could somehow say in verse 27, the Lord hated us. He wants to destroy us. When in fact, he had positively loved them and carried them on eagle's wings and showed them that he was the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, yet their thoughts of God were twisted by unbelief. But not Moses or Joshua or Caleb. Now, these guys were not blind to the obstacles. I mean, they were fully aware that there were fortified cities there. There were sophisticated armies, powerful inhabitants. They were realists, but here's the difference. Joshua had said of the Canaanites, don't be afraid of the people of the land. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. So the fear group left God out of the equation. It was just them against an overwhelming enemy. And so they looked like grasshoppers in their own sight. 
But the faith group was different. The faith group looked not to themselves, but to God. You see, genuine faith doesn't ignore facts. Genuine faith just takes God into the account. Now, my friends, does any of this apply to you? Well, three considerations. Three considerations for us. First, what about your fear? Consider your fear as you look ahead to the year 2022. I mean, do you fear that you're going to get sick? Do you fear, for example, that you're never going to meet the one who brings you marital bliss and happiness? Do you fear for the well-being and health of your children? Do you fear that you might get passed over for that promotion? Or you might lose your job? You know, for the believer, there's no guarantee that you won't get sick. Or that you will meet a suitable spouse. Or that your children will turn out to be well and healthy. Or that you'll find stability and fulfillment in a job. Sometimes we do. But friends, our ultimate hope here is not in those things. Our hope is that even in a wilderness of disappointment and discouragement, God goes with us. In fact, He is specially with us in those times, just as He was with them. Verse 31. This is an extraordinary verse. Verse 31, where it says, Remember how the Lord your God has carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Friends, remember, whatever you're facing, God is not in a panic. He's not caught off guard. In fact, God has all of 2022 mapped out to great specificity. Psalm 139, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He will carry us. He can defeat the enemies that we cannot defeat. So that's first, the question of fear. Second, consider your murmuring. You're murmuring. Verse 26, you murmured in your tents. Now, I know some people just call this harmless venting. We're just stating facts. But, you know, to God, complaining is a grave sin. Do you understand why murmuring is such a big deal with God? What you're saying when you murmur and complain is you're saying, God, I don't like the way you're arranging my life. I don't care if these circumstances give me an opportunity to show your faithfulness. I want to run my life, thank you. You see, sin makes everything about me. And so it blinds us to the good that God has given. Instead of being thankful to God for His many evidences of kindness, well, we grumble about them. Now, my Christian friend, if you believe, as you should, that God has control over everything, even the finest detail of your life, then you should admit that your grumbling against circumstances is actually a grumbling against God. Fear. Murmuring. And then thirdly, unbelief. Consider your unbelief for a moment, because that was the root sin. And here is where the New Testament book of Hebrews zeroes in on the unbelief of these people. 
Keep your finger in Deuteronomy and turn ahead to Hebrews 3, the passage that Kwesi read for us earlier. Hebrews will help us to apply Deuteronomy. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Everybody got that? Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he's going to quote a psalm here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, God's rest in the New Testament means true, fulfilling fellowship in the very presence of the living God. It's an offer that one day God will dwell with us personally in what, what the Scripture calls rest. It's described as a heavenly homeland, an eternal city, it's a picture of everlasting satisfaction. Now, the people who long for the city of Dubai, they find their satisfaction here in uh, creature comforts and shopping malls or thrilling relationships or the comfort of nice things. Short-term, fading, shakable joys. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then look down at the last verse of the chapter. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see, verse 19, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. No generation up until that time had beheld a more spectacular work of God than this one. And they didn't have to fight even one battle. And they were now liberated. And God was leading them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet they'd rather be slaves in Egypt and be rid of God. It wasn't just their bad decision. It wasn't just because they got hungry in the wilderness. There was something wrong on the inside do you see the seriousness of unbelief? You know, these people who perished were part of the Old Testament community. I mean, outwardly, they had confirmed the covenant, and the earlier generation had been circumcised back in Egypt. So these people, visibly speaking, were a part of the, the outward church. Now, I wonder, is it possible that anyone here today is visibly a part of the church, but in fact does not believe. Might it be that you go through all the, all the motions, you attend church and you take the Lord's Supper, call yourself a Christian, but in fact you don't really have saving faith. You know, the Bible says this is a real possibility. And I say that too. I grew up going to church. And if you had asked me, I would have said that I was a Christian. But I was the farthest thing from it. Friends, examine yourself. Be a part of a real church 
where people will take you seriously and hold you accountable and serve and love you because the consequences of unbelief are spiritually deadly. Now back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34. Deuteronomy 1, verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. Now, he's referring here to their murmuring. It's interesting that they spoke these words in the privacy of their own tents, verse 27, and yet the Lord heard them, verse 34. So what you speak in your tent is known by God. And he was angered. Is he a God of love? Yes. Is he also angry and wrathful towards sin? Well, that's what it says. Verse 35, he was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, now this is Moses speaking, even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Notice that's back in the same direction from which they had come the direction back towards slavery and sin. God sent them packing. Ironic that their children, whom they used as an excuse not to go in, actually entered. But they would not. An entire generation would perish outside the land as a consequence of their rebellion. And what's worse, they lamented their sin, but they didn't learn from it. Or truly repent. Look at verse 41. <clears throat> verse 41. Then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. I think it was the most fearful thing that a young nation could possibly have heard. There in verse 42 when it said, Do not go up to fight. Why not? For I am not in your midst. These people had been abandoned. Their only hope in a howling wilderness against superior firepower and more advanced civilization was this, that God would go with them. When the Lord told them to go, they refused. When He told them not to go, they insisted on going in. Raymond Brown said, when it was promised territory, they would not enter it. 
now it is forbidden territory, they will not stay away. And so they fled in humiliation as though chased by hornets. And they pled with God in tears, but since they didn't listen to God, now God would not listen to them. And the children of that rebellious generation, they were the ones who were now assembled on the plains of Moab, being instructed by Moses at the age of 120. And the question was, will they rebel like their parents? Or will they cross the Jordan by faith and possess the promised land? And these were people who needed to be reminded of the lessons of their past. Now, as we draw this to a conclusion, you know, it's not just the ancient Israelites who are forgetful, is it? They aren't the only ones with a poor memory, are they? When we are fearful, what must we do? When we approach 2022 with trembling, we must do what they did on the plains of Moab, facing the promised land. We must hear God's word. Verse 21. Look at the end of the verse. As the Lord has told you, do not fear or be dismayed. Or look at verse 29. Verse 29. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Well, why not? Because he will go with us. No, more than that. He will carry us. He's never failed. Across all of the centuries of divine providence, not one promise has gone unanswered. My friend, do you seriously think that he would begin with us? So are you frightened about the future? Here's a message for you. The good news is that it's God's future. He owns the future and not us. He determines it. He knows all about it. He's ordained all of it. And so here are the two alternatives for you as you face 2022. You can fear your circumstances or you can trust God. You can tremble over giants and obstacles in your life or you can entrust yourself to the one who said, I will never leave you. You know, it's interesting that not even Moses made it into the promised land. He too was somehow identified with the old generation. Now, we know from numbers that on another occasion, Moses sinned, striking the rock twice in disobedience to God. But this occasion was different. In verse 37, he said God was angry with Moses on your account. That is, as a result of the sin of the people. They were to blame, but as their mediator, Moses was implicated. And he bore the punishment alongside them. And so... Joshua, the son of Nun, would lead the people into the promised land. Of course, that name Joshua means the Lord saves. Jesus' name was Joshua. Jesus, you know, is just the, the Greek form of the Hebrew Yeshua, which we call Joshua. As the angel said upon Jesus' birth, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Friends, True rest, true fellowship with God was not achieved by Joshua when he physically entered Canaan. 
Because Hebrews chapter 4 says if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, the New Testament sees the promised land of Canaan as a symbol of something, of a new heaven and a new earth promised at the very end of time. Canaan pointed forward to a restored universe. The rest of Joshua simply pointed ahead to a fuller eternal rest in another covenant head, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what we sang about uh, in the song right before the sermon. Take a look at page 9 of your bulletin. We're actually going to sing this again as a closer. Look at page 9. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. All o'er those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. But the question is, how do you get in to the heavenly Canaan? Well, it's not through works. And it's not through worry. The day was coming when Jesus Christ, the long-awaited deliverer, would come, and he came as the greater Yeshua, as the true Israel. Jesus went through the wilderness for us, just like them, but he never sinned. Forty days in the wilderness, one day for each of the years of this rebellious people, tempted by the devil, resisting him, defeating them, Jesus didn't merely go through the wilderness to show us that it could be done. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not Jesus survived the wilderness and so can you. No, it's much richer than that. He went through the wilderness on our behalf, in our place, for us. Do you remember in John's gospel when Philip asked Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus replied, I am the way. Jesus was thinking of Israel's way in the wilderness. Actually, he was thinking of this passage here. Look at chapter 1, verse 31. 1, verse 31. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God has carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came into this place. Or look at verse 33. Who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night, in the cloud by day, to show you by what way you should go. Well, Jesus is the way. He lived an entire life of flawless obedience, and at the end of the life, Jesus went to the cross, and the captain received the spear thrust to win the battle. Jesus bore the penalty. He took upon himself the wrath of the living God in our place, on our behalf. And then he rose in triumph over our sin. And so now for all of us who come to him, he will give the gift of righteousness so that we can finally come home. As he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So true rest True fellowship with God is available to you, just as Jesus invited us. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest.
So have you put your faith in God's promise regarding His Son? Jesus said, you come to me. That's what faith is. It's coming to Christ. It's not agreeing with some set of ideas. Faith in Jesus is not deciding you're now going to be a better person. True faith is entrusting yourself to a living person. Jesus said, come to me. And the promise, if you do, I will give you rest. So, Will you believe this promise? Will you act on it? Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that the borders have been opened to the promised land, to the heavenly Canaan, through the torn body of Christ, crucified for sinners. We praise you for the invitation that he gives to one and all to come and to be satisfied and to rest. Lord, help us even now to draw near to you through our Savior. We pray for those who are here this morning who don't yet know Christ. We pray that they would entrust their whole lives to him, that they would yield to him and know the joy of the restful peace of the heavenly Canaan for Jesus' sake. Amen.